Welcome to those that are here and in the gym and watching online. We're glad that we can worship together. I'm Pastor Ron, one of the pastors here, and it is our joy to dive into God's Word. There was a missionary, a story told by a missionary, returning to the United States um, a little bit ago. These are the days when overseas travel was by ship. And he was coming into New York Harbor, and on the same ship that he was on, there was an acclaimed national figure. And so crowds were waiting on the docks for this person and greeting and cheering. And the missionary couldn't help but feel the contrast. So he had been laboring for the treasure that does not perish, pouring his life's blood into sowing the seed of the gospel. But as he, he looked over the dock, and as he scanned the faces on the dock, he realized that no one had come to welcome him home. As he began to, to submerge into a wave of self-pity, as, as would be natural, he realized the truth as clearly as if a voice had spoken to him from heaven. Do not be discouraged. You have not yet reached home. Amen? And so... The story of Daniel, the story of Daniel 7 is do not be discouraged, Daniel. Do not be discouraged, church. You have not yet reached home. You have not yet reached the final kingdom where sin is completely obliterated, where those that follow Jesus, those that are covered by the blood of the Lamb that have been forgiven because of His death on the cross, join Him in ruling and join Him in His kingdom. That will be home. And so Daniel 7 and really all of the apocalyptic literature that we're studying, the rest of Daniel and referencing Revelation, it all is a reminder of when home is coming and what Jesus is going to do, what He has done on the cross of ushering in His kingdom, but then when He finally ushers in His physical kingdom and we're part of it and we can look forward to it. And that is how we deal with today. That is how we deal with this fallen world. That is how we deal with the struggles internally that we deal with is the truth that we are not home. But we will be. We will be. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And we broke this chapter up into two parts because there's just a lot to talk about when we come to prophecy and when we come to the future. And and so last week we sort of did a, a little intro on prophecy and apocalyptic literature just to remind ourselves how to understand these texts, how to read them. And if you remember, with especially apocalyptic literature like this, the story is told through pictures, and usually vivid pictures, and bizarre, quite frankly, to us, pictures. But it's like a graphic novel or a comic book where these pictures are telling so much of the story. And so we saw that begin last week in the first half of Daniel 7. The other thing I'll remind us of when we deal with prophecy of this nature It is tempting to try to identify every little detail and to say, okay, this is when Jesus is coming back and this is who the Antichrist is. And we're not doing that because that's not the bigger picture. The bigger picture is the home that we have waiting for us, the kingdom that's coming. And so a lot of this we deal with an open hand, we call it. We said, maybe, maybe that's what it means. Maybe this is true. And and it's okay to, to dig in and God gave us his word to dig in and enjoy But we don't know for sure on a lot of this. And so we wanted to approach this with humility. Last week we saw the picture start. The dream that Daniel had that was, quite frankly, very alarming to him. And we're going to see that a couple more times today. 
And in verses 1 through 8, last week, point number 1 was the four, the four alarming beasts are not outside of God's rule. And we saw the turbulent ocean which represented this earth and the four beasts coming up that were more like monsters coming up and what they represented kingdoms of earth and none of them were outside of God's rule. Not a one was above God. And Daniel showed that, or God showed Daniel that rather, in verses 9-14 through when we went to the court of the Ancient of Days and we shifted from the turbulent world we live in to the peace and righteousness of the throne room of God. And the Ancient of Days, and then we were introduced to the Son of Man, to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and we see Him ruling. And we see just a little verse in there that, that says that the evil one opposed Him and He was defeated. Because the the picture is about the Ancient of Days ruling. I wanted to show just an artist rendering of that that I didn't show last week. But since we're dealing with pictures, this is one artist's view of the Ancient of Days with the white hair and the glory, but the throne of fire. and, And we see scrolls there from Revelation. Maybe. I, I don't know. I, I don't know that we'll be able to picture it. But the picture that is being presented in, in the Word is of a perfect, righteous, and holy judge who gave His Son to be our righteousness so He could judge with love and grace. And those that follow His Son experience His Son's righteousness, Jesus Christ's righteousness. And those that don't are judged for their sin. And so then we got to verses 15 through 18 and point number three, and, and we see Daniel's a little anxious about all this, and he goes and asks one of the angels, probably an angel's, maybe, and, and, and he asks him, so what's going on? This is all just very troubling. And, and the angel just paints the overview. These are the, the kingdoms of earth, but none of that matters because the kingdom of God will reign. And this messenger is relieving his anxiety by pointing him to the right thing, right? By pointing him to the eternal, by pointing him to truth rather than what he was feeling about the the monsters and the beasts in the first part. And so then we come to our text today, and we're going to just look at two points today. And and the, the first point is we'll just have a lot of fun things to talk about as we we get to to see a few more windows into the future. A few more windows into the end times and the last days and then the kingdom of God. And so we come to verse 19. And point number four in your, ver- your notes is the fourth beast attacks. The fourth beast attacks defying God's rule. And so we get to this, this situation where this whole section is about the fourth beast and, and the horns on the fourth beast and the little horn. And, and we're going to talk about some of those a little bit. And we're going to do a lot of maybes today about what some of this might be and why that, that we think Scripture points us that direction. But the bigger picture of this is this fourth beast is defying God and attacking God, atta- attacking His rule, attacking His saints. And so we should expect that and we should know that that is coming and that is part of Satan's plan. But that's not where the chapter is going to end. And we're going to see the fifth point where it ends as we're drawn back to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In this section, 19 through 25, just a little bit to help us understand the text, 19 through 27 actually, 
19 through 22, we see Daniel remembering the dream a little bit. And so we see a lot of things that happen over and over in this chapter. And in 19 through 22, we again have him remembering the dream, which we already saw in the first half. But then in 23 through 27, we see God explaining the dream to Daniel and explaining what these things mention. And so this morning, as we go through it, we're going to look at both the description of the dream and the explanation together. So like we'll look at verses 19 and 23 together. We'll look at verses 20 and 24 together. And so we'll just break it down by parts and try to understand the message that God is giving us. We read in verse 19, and Daniel is talking here in the first person. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And what's interesting to me is where this falls. And, and allow me a little bit of conjecture here as I, as I think through this. We just saw in verses 15 through 18 that Daniel said he was anxious, that he was alarmed. And we see that the angel points him to the kingdom of God. Okay, And that's the answer to his anxiety. Make sense? Because the truth of God's kingdom. What do we see in verse 19? But what about the fourth beast? But I, the fourth beast looks really bad. And, and this could be just a common inquisitive spirit. But looking at even the end of the chapter, it, 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 it seems to me that there's a little bit of anxiety here because he, he's struggling like we all do, which is why I think it's in here. He's struggling with seeing the eternal, but also seeing that what's going to happen on this earth. And it's not pretty. And, and don't we struggle with that today? Anyone struggled with thinking about the election this week? With thinking about politics? With thinking about whether or not we'll be able to give out candy on Halloween? Depending on the governor's orders? A candy gun. That's why I keep telling people, you just go, just open the door and fire it at them. We're good. <laughs> keep your six foot distance, get hard candy, and they won't come back. No. Uh, <laughs> sort of goes against the track thing and having good candy. <laughs> But there are so many things in this present world that can do this to our vision that we can't see this. We can't see the bigger picture. And I think, this is again, my, my, own, my own opinion is Daniel's struggling with this. This fourth beast appears to be the source of his fear. And, and his fear is that he's seeing the, 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 the evil rather than his final home. And this is, this is so important to think about. And, and what's beautiful to me is God still answers. God's not like, well, you know, you should, have, you should have been thinking about the kingdom. No, he takes the time and says, okay, let's talk about the fourth kingdom. Let's talk about your fears. Let's work them out. And then he directs them back to the kingdom of God. It's, 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 it's a beautiful thing. I think a little bit of Peter in the New Testament, when Peter's walking on the water. And when did he start to fall? When he took his eyes off Jesus. And he took his eyes off truth and started seeing the turbulent around him. And he's sinking and he says one of the greatest prayers, Lord, save me. And Jesus saves him. And he gets his focus back on the right thing. So, so we have this desire to know about the fourth beast, which was troubling. Make no mistake, it was terrifying. 
And so we see that in verse 19, exceedingly terrifying with teeth of iron and claws of bronze, devoured broken pieces, stamped what was left with his feet. And we jump to verse 23 and we see the description of it or the, the interpretation. Thus he said, the messenger from God, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. Well, that's helpful for anxiety. But it's true. That's what it appears like, it's, what it's going to be like here on earth. And so we see some insight into this fourth kingdom. One of the things we see is that is, this kingdom is different from the rest. It's inherently different, and that could be in makeup, that, that could be in scope. But I also think it's probably different in terms of the rest because we're now dealing with the last kingdom on earth, a kingdom that is going to be ruled by one that is directly empowered by Satan. And so we are dealing with a spiritual warfare unlike any of the other kingdoms before. Not to say the kingdoms before weren't evil. But this is evil on, a, on, on steroids. An evil on a, a whole new level because Satan himself is empowering the leadership. And so you get descriptions of how fearsome it is. Not like any beast of earth. We talked about that last week. There's, there's no like, like a lion or like a bear or like a teddy bear. There, there, there's none of that. It's just this is unlike every, anything else with teeth of iron which represents that it can just tear and rip with its teeth and nothing will stop it. Claws of bronze representing the destruction. It will devour, it will trample. Not just one nation, but the whole earth. And so the power and devastation and destruction here is real. It's real. And so by looking at the final kingdom, it doesn't negate that there are some really awful things that are going to happen here on this planet before the Lord comes back and makes it right. You know, there, there's all kinds of questions. Well, what, what kingdom does this refer to? And, and we talked about some of the other kingdoms. The others are pretty easy to define. The Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, Greece. And then we get to here, and some would identify this with Rome. And, and there are a number of features of Rome that definitely fit this. Rome had the most fearsome army to date. They were brutal. And we've talked about that. And, and I think what's better is to think of this as Rome being a, a first fulfillment of that, a partial fulfillment of that. But we see by, by the language that we're going to continue to study that this is the final kingdom on earth that Jesus returns and destroys completely and sets up his kingdom. Has that happened yet? Would we say that this is the kingdom of God? And sin has been destroyed. No, not if you've been out of your room. You, you, you wouldn't say that. And so that we are still looking forward to. The things that are, that are being described here are still to come. Certainly Rome could, could fit as a partial fulfillment of that. But there is going to be a future fulfillment where this kingdom rises in terror and God puts it down. I think as I was thinking through this, I was thinking through, okay, think of the worst this world has to offer. What is the worst this world could do to us right now? And this kingdom is probably worse. I, I know this, this is the cheery part. <laughs> no, it's not. 
But this kingdom is probably worse than that. Because there will be a deliberate attempt to wipe the people of God off the face of this earth. And so that is why Daniel was struggling with seeing this and and being worried about this. This was a difficult thing to see. So that's the kingdom. And then in verse 20 and 24, we get to these, these horns. And it has ten horns. And as one horn rises up and replaces three of the others, uproots three of the others. So let's read verse 20 and 24. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. And then jumping down to verse 24. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise. And we're like, aha! It's not just horns. Out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones. And wherever there's the word different in this text, we need to to mark that because that is signifying something different from just the normal earthly kingdoms. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. And so we get this description of the horns. And this is where we get into a whole lot of maybes. And and we have to to view this with a lot of open hand. And there's several things we see. The ten horns first. And and the word itself in verse 24 interprets this as ten kings. Possibly ruling over different portions. Some have said maybe successive kings as we've tried to shoehorn this text into history. But I think it's from the wording here, it really looks like all ten kings will be ruling different places at the same time. And different portions. And, and these will arise out of this fourth kingdom. If we see this as Rome as a precursor, it's then a rebuilt empire that is in the, the nature of Rome. But somehow there will be an empire that's a worldwide empire that ten rulers will rise up and reign over different parts of it. In Revelation 17, 12 through 14, and it's a, a passage that really looks like explaining the Daniel 7 passage a little bit more. And, and just as a side note, it really looks like the Apostle John, as he's writing Revelation, I think he had the scroll of Daniel open. And, and the Holy Spirit is revealing him things about the scroll of Daniel because there's so much overlap and so many things he's writing about. But listen to this out of Romans, Revelation 17, 12 through 14. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings, sound familiar, who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, representing a short amount of time, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, boom, and for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. I think those verses are describing the scene in in Daniel 7. And so these ten kings will arise, ruling. I know there's all kinds of talk in every generation about who the ten kings might be. Not going there. So so don't, I'm not going to list rulers on the earth. And at some point, ten kings will arise. And, And actually the point isn't so much the ten kings of what happens next. Because he's getting to this little horn. And so we see that one more horn gains power at the expense of three of them. Another horn, an eleventh horn comes up, three of them fall. And how that works or how that looks, we don't know. Perhaps there's war, perhaps there's a usurping. 
But somehow there's dissension that three of them fall and then this new one that is different from the other ones that seems greater, that is empowered differently, probably not as human, rises up and really ends up ruling over all of them. Now there are all kinds of possibilities, all kinds of maybes for who this is. There's three that I would say are the major maybes. Um, a, a group of people would say, well, this is Antiochus Epiphanes, which happened a, a couple of, of centuries before Christ. And, and it, it happened during the Grecian Empire. And this guy came in and, and um, desecrated the temple, sat on the throne, set himself up as God. Certainly evil. Certainly a precursor of this. But I don't think it's him because that doesn't fit within the, the four beasts. He would be in the third beast and, and some other things. And just the language again, this is a final ruler. And Antiochus Epiphanes wasn't a final ruler. Some have tied this to Nero. And there are certainly a whole lot of things, especially as you bring in the Revelation passages, that would tie it to Nero in AD 70 when Nero came in and destroyed the temple. Stone came off stone thrown to the ground off the Temple Mount. And certainly that was evil. And I think a type of Antichrist of what was to come. The third major option and the one that that I'll be holding this morning and presenting is that this represents a future Antichrist. The future Antichrist. It's a future ruler that will come, that will be empowered by Satan, that will be the final ruler of earthly kingdoms, before Jesus Christ comes and sets up His earthly kingdom and wipes out sin forever. A couple of reasons why, and, and I know this is sort of the fun part of, of prophecy, right? We get a little technical. Um, let, me, let me just share some verses with you that, that to me help make this case. Um, first one is Daniel 9, 26. And we'll get there in a couple of weeks when we're studying Daniel 9. It talks about a, a coming ruler or the prince who is to come. In Daniel 9, 26... We read, and after the 62 weeks, and we'll get into the weeks in Daniel 9. That's, it's all part of the prophecy and how we put things together. But, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the princes to come, who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Probably the same person. A prince who is to come that will war against the people of God on this, on this earth. In Revelation 13, we see the beast. In Revelation 17, we see the beast with ten horns, probably referencing the same, and, and, and the, the, um, the same person with the little horn and the beast empowering it. Um, this probably is the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians. In, in 1 John 2.18, we read this, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. What John is saying there is there is the Antichrist coming, but before that there's a whole lot of partial fulfillments, a whole lot of evil people that look like the Antichrist, that act like the Antichrist because they are, are following the path of sin and evil. He says, but there is to come, and, and John is saying this is still in the future, 
there is to come the Antichrist who will be the culmination of all of Satan's work on this earth. Now we could look at all that and, and we could get, get really scared because this is going to be a fearsome individual. This is going to be an individual with great power, but not the greatest power. And that's why the text doesn't stop here. And Daniel, God is trying to give Daniel a bigger picture of what is going on. Again, we must resist trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. Every generation tries this, right? Every generation from the time of Christ has tried this. In, in recent history, relative to all of history, there were, there were people that felt Hitler was the Antichrist. Was he a type of Antichrist? Certainly. Was he the Antichrist? I don't know. The question we'd have to ask is, has Jesus come back and destroyed the earthly kingdoms and set up his heavenly kingdom? Not yet. So he's a Antichrist, but not the Antichrist. I can remember in the 80s, a lot of people were thinking Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist. Now I know there's a lot of Reagan fans here. But they did this by taking his first name, middle name, and last name, and they were all six digit or six characters. And so obviously 666, he's the Antichrist. I remember hearing that Bill Clinton was the Antichrist. I remember hearing that Barack Obama was the Antichrist. I've heard that Donald Trump is the, the Antichrist. I never heard that about Bush. I'm not sure. That'd be an interesting political <laughs> journey there. Um, why? Why do we have this fascination of trying to, to pick a person? Uh, many times in Protestant, Protestantism, the Pope has been considered the Antichrist. And, and I'm not sure why we have to do this other than trying to be in the know and have the secret knowledge. <coughs> uh, excuse me. Or maybe somehow being able to vilify someone, at times someone we don't agree with. But I, th- I just think the First John 2.18 passage is key. There will be many Antichrists, but the Antichrist is still coming. And that's what I think we're talking about here in Daniel chapter 7. So then we get into verse 21 and 25, the end of 20, 21 and 25, and we get into what this final horn will do, what the Antichrist will do. Or if you take one of the other interpretations, but like I said, I'm going with Antichrist. In verse 20 to 21 and 25, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. And then jumping down to verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Everyone get everything in that verse? This is why we're we're taking our time to wade through it a little bit. And there's there's a lot of images here. A lot of images. So let's just grab a couple of them. The first is that we see the Antichrist is going to oppose God and the saints. The Antichrist is going to oppose God and the saints. Look at some of the things it says. In, in both, it talks about his mouth that spoke great things. 
in verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High. That's, that's the same thing that they're talking about. He will blaspheme against God Almighty. Blaspheme against the Most High, probably through pride and thinking he's God and setting himself up as God. Now, before we go down the path of saying, how could anyone do that? He's really a jerk. Every time we sin, we are setting ourselves up as greater than God and knowing more than God, right? Because we are defying his commands and his purpose for us. So, so we have to be careful of saying this is just somebody else because we can have some of these same tendencies. I am not saying the Antichrist is in this room. Not where I'm going with that. But we all are fighting evil and sin in our lives. But this person personifies it to the 10th degree or the nth degree. Blasphemy. He will speak words against God. He will speak words against the Most High. Another feature of the Antichrist here is there will be a long persecution of the saints of the church. And we have to look at this realistically because it's a, it's a, it's a heads up from God. A heads up that the church will be warred against. Verse 21, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. And that's a sobering verse to read because it's going to look like Satan is winning at times. It's going to look like evil is winning at times. So he makes war with the saints through the Antichrist, through, through his kingdom, prevails over them. In verse 25, which actually is even more troubling language for me or, or, or cause anxiety. Again, I, I get where Daniel's at. And shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And so we see by, by this wearing out, the idea is that you wear a garment enough and it eventually gets holes in the knees. Or if you have little ones, they wear it once and it has holes in the knees. But this is more, think in terms of wearing something a long time. And it eventually wears out. And so this imagery is this long persecution of the church, this long persecution of saints. It wears them out. They're oppressed. They're harassed. They're pressured. And this is what Satan intends to do to God's people. Why does the Antichrist hate the saints? It's just a side question that I thought of as I was studying for this. I think, I think there's a lot of things wrapped up into this. One is we oppose him. And, and his pride will not allow anyone to oppose him and must counter anyone that opposes him. Another reason is the Antichrist is empowered by Satan. And so Satan hates anything that is from God. Satan hates people that are made in the image of God because it reminds him that God created us and he didn't. And so he fights against anything with the image of God, which is why sanctity of life is such a huge issue because at its heart, it is a demonic issue where Satan is trying to, to remove the sanctity of life because that represents the image of God. Satan hates those that have chosen to follow God. He hates those made in the image of God. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says, The coming of the lawless one, which is the reference to the Antichrist here, I believe, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. 
And so if we wonder why the Antichrist hates the saints, we just have to ask, why does Satan hate God? That is the bigger picture of the war that is happening. That is the bigger picture of the Bible, that God is redeeming creation to Himself through Jesus Christ. And the entire Bible is about Satan defying God and, and God and, and, and bringing people with Him and bringing sin into this world and God through His grace and love bringing His Son into this world to pay the price for our sin that if we follow Him, we can be part of His kingdom. We can have salvation if we repent and follow Jesus Christ who on that day He died on the cross defeated sin and inaugurated His kingdom and someday will bring it to earth with His people. And so we see these verses of how hard it's going to be. A couple more things out of, out of verse 25 there. Um, he shall think to change the times and the law. And, and looking at how these words were used, the times, the set times, appears to be the set religious observances of, of God's people. And so the idea here is the, the lawless one, the Antichrist, he's going to set up his own religion. He's going to set up his own ways of worshiping him, his own feasts, his own ways of doing things. And he's going to deify himself. So he'll change those times. And then he'll change the law. There will be a new morality. And again, there's already little a antichrists here that are trying to change morality, right? We see right being called wrong and wrong being called right. This is a precursor of what the, the antichrist is going to do. And it says that there. He's going to change the times, the religious observances, change the law, the morality. And they shall be given into his hand. Underline given in your Bible or highlight it or write it in your notes if you don't want to write in your Bible. What does given imply? They didn't take it. He couldn't take it. It was given by someone else, right? If I give Phil a $100 bill, you like that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can he say that that was... Because he took it? No, giving someone something implies a giver. This again, th this passage oozes with the sovereignty of God. And God is saying, no, no, I gave him the time, time, times and half a time. This is all part of God's sovereign plan to bring evil to its knees and to judge it. Now time, times and half a times... There's, there's several different ways of looking at it. I think the most helpful is, is even in chapter 4 where time, we, we know times represented years. These are period of time. And if you think of times, one year, time, time, times plural, two more years, and then half a time, you're probably looking at three and a half years. Maybe. <laughs> it, it fits some of the things we know from Revelation, but we have to treat that with the loose hands. Um, and it looks like They'll be given into the, the, the saints and the church will be given into the hands of the evil one for time, times, and half a time. Those saints that are still here. Or those saints that have come to, come to know the Lord during that time. Revelation 11, 2 and 3 says, But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. 
You know how long 42 months is? Three and a half years. It's a coincidence. Um, And I shall grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Do you know approximately how much 1,260 days is? It's about three and a half years. Could be symbolism. So we say maybe. I think this is a literal three and a half year time because as we study Revelation, we see that this world is given over to the Antichrist to his evil during the second half of the tribulation. The second half is sometimes called the time of wrath the time of the great tribulation, whatever it is, it's not a good time. If we put the, our chart up that I keep going back to, and if you don't have a copy, I can get you a copy. Down in the bottom left, we have the rapture where the church is taken out. There will be some that I believe follow, follow God during that time and Satan wars on. But then the first half of the tribulation, the first three and a half years, appear to be a time where the Antichrist rises to power and there's peace. But the second half of those three and a half years appear to be a time of great tribulation and of, of wrath, both the wrath of God and the Antichrist ruling the worst three and a half years that this planet have, has ever seen. At the end of that, we have the second coming of Christ with saints, the battle of Armageddon, which is the shortest final battle ever, and then the millennial kingdom of a thousand years is set up by Jesus Christ with ruling with his saints and with his people a literal thousand-year kingdom on earth where Satan is bound. It's going to be great. Followed by the new heaven and the new earth, the final judgment, and then the new heaven and the new earth. These are maybes from what we see in Revelation, from what we think. But Daniel here is fitting into that second three-and-a-half-year period. I've gotten way off my notes, so let me... um, (laughs) We've already talked about Antiochus Epiphanes. We, um, <laughs> this stuff's fun. <laughs> um, one thing I want to end this section with, Satan really doesn't ever come up with new schemes. That's why there's Antichrist, little a, followed by an Antichrist. And they look the same because Satan can only do so much. Satan only has so many ideas. As the author of Ecclesiastes said, there is really nothing new under the sun. And that includes Satan's work. But we see through these verses that we're referring to the end of time, the final kingdom. Even in verses 20, um, 26, 27, which we're going to get to in the next point, the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end, and the kingdom and the domain and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So we know on the timeline of, of his story, of God's story, that we're at the end here. Because the final kingdom will be set up. Verse 22, which was going to tie into the next point, but is helpful to read. Verse 22, until the Ancient of Days comes. And again, I'd underline the word until. All of this is going to be happening. This world is in turmoil until. Until the Ancient of Days comes. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Now as we think through this this fourth point, 
of the fourth beast attacking, defying God's rule, the Antichrist rising to power. Satan is an animal backed into a corner and he's throwing his worst. There are are a couple things to consider out of this as we consider, well, okay, that's great information. How do we apply that? One of the things that I think is important is we, we don't want to deny the power of evil. Proclaiming that God is stronger, proclaiming that He is greater, doesn't mean there's, there's no Satan. It doesn't mean that Satan isn't going to attack. It doesn't mean that Satan isn't going to oppress the saints. Rather, it says we belong to someone greater who will destroy Satan, so we're on the winning team. But we don't want to think too little of Satan because then we'll fall into temptation. We won't be aware. So some of this is being aware that this will happen. When we look at the world and say churches and Christians are being persecuted around the world, they are definitely being marginalized in our own country. I hesitate to say persecuted because of how much worse it is in other countries. But, but the church is definitely being marginalized even in America. And we can, we can lose heart But part of this is, don't deny the power of evil. It's going to happen. That's part of God's plan. But God is stronger. Satan isn't God, but he's not powerless either. And so we're to be aware and to be watchful and on guard. We also don't want to make too little of Satan. We don't want to make too much of Satan. Those are the two dangers. We make too much of Satan, then we think there's no hope What can I do against sin? What can I do against temptation? No, God God wins in the end in convincing fashion. But we are called to be vigilant now to, to resist sin, to be salt and light in this world. Last three verses. Um, 20, last two verses and then with a, a postscript from Daniel. And the point number five in your notes is God's justice and kingdom prevail. God's justice and kingdom prevail, proving God still rules. Amen? All of the points in this chapter are about God's rule. Verse 26, But the court shall sit in judgment. His dominion shall be taken away. His being the Antichrist. Dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. There's a beautiful thing when evil gets its due. This is the point in the movie where we all cheer, where the Death Star blows up, where, you know, whatever. Sorry, get all nerdy on you. Um, Because we want to see justice and we want to see right prevail, which is why it's so discouraging at times to look at this world, but why God keeps pointing us to a future where God's justice and kingdom will prevail. Evil is defeated. Justice and righteousness rule the day. Verse 27, The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Say, all four of those beasts, everything that has happened on this earth, everything that Satan has influenced on this earth, gone and under the dominion, not just of God, but of His saints. Isn't that cool? His kingdom, God's kingdom, shall be an everlasting kingdom. And all dominion shall serve and obey him. So we see evil defeated and God's everlasting kingdom established.
And these verses, as, as along with Revelation, we get to be part of that. We get to reign with Christ. We get to be part of that kingdom if we turn our hearts to God. If we repent of our sins and acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross for us and accept that forgiveness, and He rose again on the third day, proving that sin and death were defeated. And we give our lives to Christ and to serve Him, and we become adopted sons and daughters brought into the kingdom. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, we will also reign with Him. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 3 says, when one of you, and this is where it's talking about don't sue each other, but listen to why. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? He's speaking of the millennial kingdom. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? If you're going to reign with Jesus... Do you think you can handle a little dispute now in the church? It's Paul's argument. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? This language here is something that hasn't happened yet. But it will. We can take it to the bank. It will. Verse 28, we get just a moment of of realism from Daniel. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. He just saw some crazy stuff. My thoughts greatly alarmed me. And my color changed. (laughs) Went pale. And I kept the matter in my heart. Until he wrote it down in Scripture. And so he doesn't get it all yet. He doesn't understand it all. But the big picture church is not to be discouraged by what we see around us, not to be discouraged by what we see in this world now, because we're not home yet. But home's coming. Home's coming. And those that follow Jesus are part of it. I'd like the worship team to come up and end by going back to the throne room scene in worship and proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And let's worship and and sing truth and put our perspective on the final kingdom on our home. Let's stand together and sing.
heads. Lord God, you are holy. You have a kingdom that you are bringing that is an everlasting kingdom. And Lord, you are just and you are righteous and you are all-powerful. You are almighty. Lord, burn those things on our brains this week as we go into this world and help us to remember truth and to live by that truth. Lord, thank you for what is coming. Thank you for your promises and giving us glimpses into that so we can have hope, an assurance of what you are doing. Lord, we trust you. We praise you. We are lights for you in this world. In your precious name, amen.